Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. It's now over a decade since the human genome was first sequenced, costing over a billion pounds and taking 13 years. Today, we're close to the $1,000 genome. But what's in a genome and what can it tell us about our risk of disease? What happens in certain individuals who have particular genetic conditions is that there are specific mutations which occur in that gene and it is those mutations in that gene that then changes our risk. Plus, we'll be arguing the age of polar bears, finding out about fish with skin cancer, and our gene of the month is one for the Trekkies out there. It's Tribbles. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for August 2012 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Since the first human genome was decoded, sequencing technology has sped up almost unimaginably and the cost has plummeted. Today's machines spit out reams of DNA sequence, usually in the form of tiny fragments of code that have to be assembled and interpreted. To find out how scientists sift the genes from the junk, I spoke to Dr Tim Hubbard, Head of Vertebrate Genome Analysis at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Nowadays, most of what we're doing here is resequencing. So we have the reference sequence of human and some of the other vertebrates, and we're interested in looking at how the sequence varies across large numbers of individuals. And so when we sequence another individual, most of them, their sequence is going to be the same as the reference sequence, and so it's a question of comparison and spotting the differences. And so that's how you deal with, with a new genome. Now, there will be unique parts of that. There's this process called assembly, where you basically put these fragments together. It's like sort of bricks on a wall. They overlap with each other, you hope, and you hope that they fit together uniquely so you can, you can make a unique sequence. As the length of the fragments gets longer, that becomes easier to build a unique assembly. So you, you get all these fragments out, you assemble them all together, you line them all up, and you get a whole genome how many different species have had their, their whole genomes read in this way? I've lost count. I mean, we have in the Ensemble database 50 vertebrates, but there are projects being planned to sequence, say, 10,000 vertebrates. I'm only talking here about vertebrates. There's many, many more genomes of pathogens, of bacteria. Basically, it's become so cheap to sequence now that you know, there's enormous amounts of sequencing going on. It's still quite hard, though, to make the first version of any particular species. It's much harder to build a reference. So you've got this this genome, this book of letters that, that makes up an organism's DNA. That's very nice. I'm sure it's a, a, a nice thing to have. The real challenge, I guess, is understanding it. How do you figure out what's in there, what makes this species the species it is? Once you have an assembly, the first thing you're interested in is where are the genes? 
the genes are the fragments of that genome that are expressed to make physical proteins, which are part of you know every cell, and mechanisms for regulating those genes, turning them on and off. Say for a human, um, how many genes are there? So for quite a while, we thought the main definition of a gene was something that makes a protein. And original estimates were that there, there might be as many as 100,000. Uh, this is all from, you know, from the year 2000 kind of analysis. And gradually that number came down, you know, the, the sort of shock um, analysis right at the beginning saying that there's only 30,000. It's actually come down now, so it's more like around 20,000. It, you know, it looked like a small set of genes. But, in, but recently it's become clear that there's other classes of genes that don't make proteins, that just make RNA. So the process of using a gene is there's the DNA sequence, you make a copy of a region of that sequence, that's RNA, and then you translate that and, make a, and manufacture protein. There's a significant set of genes where you never make the protein, you just make the RNA, and then the RNA itself is a functional unit, sometimes part of regulation, in fact, you know, sometimes there's some sort of structural function. But there seem to be a lot more of those than we thought a few years ago. Exactly how many there are, it's actually quite hard, because they're harder to identify. Proteins, there's a signature that makes it relatively easy to identify a protein sequence. RNA, it's rather more difficult. I guess these are kind of the regions of the genome that were almost dismissed as junk DNA before. We couldn't figure out what they did. Do you think the concept of junk DNA still exists? Do you think any parts of the genome are junk or will we find that they are all functional? The definition of junk kind of came with whether a region of the genome was conserved or not. And that's conservation is kind of based on comparing sequences between species. You know, is this region similar in mouse or similar in zebrafish or similar in chimpanzee or similar in other humans? We've got better at doing that, but based, that similarity is still based around proteins. It may be that there's other things that are conserved, such as the spacing between elements on the genome. It's conservation, but it doesn't, you don't score it in the same sort of way. And it's suddenly clear now that we can use this DNA technology to find the whole transcriptome, everything that's transcribed in a genome, we can also use it as another form of assay to spot a whole other layer of modification of the genome, which is the epigenome. It's a kind of modification layer on top, which seems to at least capture the state of a cell. And so, in that sense, most of the DNA is in some sort of state through the epigenome. And so you could say, well, how much, of, you know, how much junk is really left? How much is there that could be classed as junk? Because... In fact, most of it seems to be labelled in some sort of way. And we'll be covering epigenetics in a, a future edition of the Naked Genetics podcast and explore that a little bit more. But in terms of all the data that we have now, this data about uh, the genes that are active, that are transcribed, the genes in an organism's genome, all these species, all these pathogens, how do you organise it? How do you store it? And how do you make it available to, to researchers? There's pretty much a policy that's come out, partly from the Human Genome Project and other projects around at the time, of releasing that data immediately. There's been a database for DNA for 30 years now, I think. And it's become policy that when you sequence and publish 
um, it's expected that the data is deposited. But that's a huge pile of raw data, and that's rather hard for researchers to use. And so databases have grown up to organise that data. And as whole genomes have been sequenced, the whole genome has become the organising principle for DNA. And so these projects like Ensemble have become a place where you can go and see a genome and everything that's known about its annotation, about where the genes are, where factors bind, regulatory patterns. And beginning Ensemble is based on vertebrates, but you begin to, because data is now being collected around different cell types, you're beginning to be able to display that information as well about this state, epigenetic state of different cell types as well. That was Tim Hubbard from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Coming up later, we'll be finding out what we mean by a gene for a particular disease. But first, it's time to take a look at the top stories this month with science writer Dr Safia Danavi. So, what have you got for us this month? The first story comes from uh, scientists at Pennsylvania State University and the University of Buffalo in the US. And it's basically about when in history polar bears started evolving out from other types of bear. Because we covered this a couple of months ago and there'd been some new research that had suggested that maybe polar bears and brown bears split about 600,000 years ago. But actually this, is, this new data is now putting this much, much earlier. Absolutely. I mean, what a difference a few a few months makes. So at the moment, they're saying this current data is suggesting that polar bears and brown bears split about four to five million years ago. So it's a massive, massive difference. And I suppose the difference is just down to the techniques that they've used. This new study has done whole genome sequencing of the nuclear genome, whereas the last study just looked at various points in the genome. So I guess the devil's really in the detail. And what's quite interesting as well is that people are looking back at what the Earth was like four to five million years ago and saying, well, you know, it's obvious you can see about 600,000 years ago there were ice flows, the polar bears had separated geographically. But much further back than that, brown bears and polar bears were coexisting. So actually it throws up the idea that maybe there was hybridization, there was breeding between them, and the situation's a lot more murky when we look at the evolution of these bears. Absolutely. And I think that the data is being contested by another group based in uh, Frankfurt in Germany who are arguing that the ice sheets weren't around four to five million years ago. So what was the selective pressure that caused polar bears to split? So I suppose this isn't the end of the story. But seriously, who knew that polar bears could be so controversial? And some people are saying maybe as the ice sheets are vanishing, we'll see polar bears coming back onto the landmass. Maybe, maybe could they start to breed with land bears again? We might be seeing the um, emergence of a beige bear. That's certainly an interesting thought. Now, the other story that I noticed this month was from um, Emma Jury and her team at the Institute of Biotechnology in Helsinki, and they published this in Developmental Cell. And they've been studying teeth, particularly in mice, and they found a particular transcription factor called SOX2 is expressed in stem cells in the front teeth of mice. And this is quite interesting because the front teeth of mice actually grow throughout their life. But in humans, obviously, our teeth stop growing. So the the hunt is on to find what's driving the stem cells to make teeth in, in mice. And maybe we could use this to regrow teeth in humans. What do you reckon about this story? I think this is fantastic news. I'm speaking as someone who has absolutely awful teeth and would be very, very pleased to have the ability to grow my teeth from scratch. But 
on a serious note, I think it'd be really interesting to know if SOX2 is doing exactly the same thing in humans. And we know that the SOX family are a very bossy family of genes. They like telling cells exactly what to do. And the most famous example being SOX9, which tells, you know, the developing embryo to become a boy. You know, I wait with interest on this story and I think it's going to become commercially quite important. And now moving from mice with teeth, we're moving to fish with cancer. What's this final story? This is actually a really troubling story in that they found melanoma for the first time in a fish population. This is a wild fish population off the Australian coast out by the Great Barrier Reef. And it's worrying because it's a commercially important species of fish. This is a coral trout and it's actually the first time that they found melanoma in fish. So it's, it's interesting. And what's particularly noteworthy is that this part of the coast lies directly beneath the largest hole in the ozone layer. So they think that actually the loss of ozone is pretty much causing overexposure by UV to these fish and is causing their cancers. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've ruled out sort of microbial pathogens and pollution. So at the moment, UV seems to be the most likely cause. I think they'll go, they're going to have to prove that experimentally. But they also did show that these melanomas that they found in these fish were quite similar to the melanomas found in humans. So it wouldn't be surprising if UV was the main cause. But how widespread is this? I mean, melanoma in humans isn't that common a cancer. What sort of numbers of fish were getting this disease? So they sampled um, just under 140 fish and they found around 15% of them had these melanoma lesions. But of course, they suspect that the proportion of fish in the wild with melanoma is probably going to be much higher because obviously seriously ill fish are probably going to retreat and hide at the bottom of the ocean where they're less likely to be caught and sampled. So we have no idea how widespread this problem is. So what do they plan to do next now that they found this out? I guess the next step would be first to to look at the melanomas and characterise them. And then, of course, it begs the question, what are there any other species of fish that are being plagued by this cancer type? And that's actually quite worrying. It's certainly some food for thought. Thanks for that roundup, Safia. That's Safia Danavi, science writer. And now it's time to look at the other stories that have been hitting the headlines this month. A team at the Heart Institute at San Diego State University have discovered that damaged heart tissue from older patients with heart failure could be rejuvenated by modified stem cells taken from their own hearts, publishing their findings in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. The scientists took samples of cardiac stem cells from elderly patients and added a protein called PIM1, which helps to promote cell survival and growth. They found that the telomeres in the cells, the caps on the ends of chromosomes, started to lengthen, effectively turning back the genetic clock and making the cells younger. So far, the researchers have tested modified heart stem cells in mice and pigs and found new heart tissue growth in just a few weeks, opening the door to potential tissue engineering for people with heart failure in the future. Writing in the journal Nature Medicine this month, Dr. Ava Jimenez-Mateos and her team of neuroscientists at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland have tracked down a new gene involved in epilepsy. Unlike most genes that encode proteins, the new gene makes microRNA, known as microRNA-134, which is present in much higher levels in the part of the brain that causes epileptic seizures. The team then used a new type of molecule known as an antagomere to remove that particular microRNA from brain cells and found it prevented seizures for up to a month. The researchers hope their discovery could one day bring hope to people with epilepsy whose condition can't be controlled effectively by medication. A new study in PLOS Genetics has thrown fuel on a controversial debate in the field of fertility research. 
the question of whether mammalian females, including women, can make new eggs after birth or not. Many researchers believe that egg cells are only formed when a female fetus develops in the womb and no more eggs are made after it's born. But when scientists from Massachusetts General Hospital and the University of Edinburgh reassessed data from a study in mice published in the journal back in February, they came to the surprising conclusion that there was evidence to suggest that egg cells could divide after birth. Although there's a lot more work to be done to prove it, and it's unknown whether this phenomenon also occurs in humans, it raises the intriguing possibility that adult females may be able to make new egg cells as they age. A pair of studies published in the journal Nature Genetics unveiled gene faults lying behind two rare but debilitating childhood diseases. In the first, researchers at Duke University Medical Center in the US found the gene mutation responsible for alternating hemiplegia of childhood, or AHC, a condition that causes paralysis of alternate sides of the body, as well as seizures and learning difficulties. The condition isn't hereditary, so the scientists had to scour the genomes of just seven patients with AHC, comparing them with their parents until they found a gene fault common to all seven. They then went on to show that the mutation in a gene called ATP1A3 was also present in over three quarters of AHC patients around the world. While it's a long way from a cure, the scientists hope their finding will increase awareness of the disease and help doctors to make an accurate diagnosis. The second gene to be tracked down lies behind labour congenital amaurosis, or LCA, a rare form of blindness that sets in during infancy. After nearly a decade of hunting, the team at the Ocular Genomics Institute in Massachusetts, led by Eric Pierce, found that faults in a gene called NMNAT1 could cause the disease, bringing the total number of identified LCA mutations to 18. Unlike other previously identified LCA gene faults, which tend to be genes involved in light sensing, NMN81 helps cells to make energy. They hope that this new discovery could pave the way for interventions to slow or even completely prevent the onset of blindness in these children. If you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Katani. Still to come, we'll be finding out why siblings aren't identical twins and getting to grips with tribbles, our furry gene of the month. One big area where sequencing technology has made an impact is in our understanding of the genetic faults and variations that increase our risk of different diseases. Often we'll see research in this field reported in terms such as scientists find new gene for cancer, heart disease or whatever. But what does this actually mean? To find out, I spoke to Dr Carl Anderson, a statistical geneticist at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Centre. So I I don't really like the term gene 4 because we all have that gene and that gene exists in our genome to encode a protein which has a certain function and that the function of that protein is is critical or is useful to everyday uh, human life. That's why the gene is there, that's why the protein is made and that's why the, the gene exists. What happens in certain individuals who, who, who have particular genetic conditions and you know, where this term gene 4 comes from is that there are specific, specific mutations which occur in, in that gene and it is those mutations in that gene that change the, the function of the gene. They change the, the way the pro- protein functions, the abundancy with, with which the protein is present in our system, the folding of the protein. They make some subtle change to that protein that then changes our risk. So it's not, it's not true that, that you know, this is a gene 4 
breast cancer, let's say. That's not why that gene exists. It doesn't, it's not present in our genome to cause breast cancer. It has some other function that when um, there's a particular mutation in that gene, that then increases risk for, for breast cancer, whatever the disease happens to be. So we should start talking about a mutation for breast cancer or heart disease rather than a gene for... Exactly, because we all have that gene. And quite likely, if you didn't have that gene, you'd be in, in, in quite a lot of trouble. And what sort of diseases would you class as, as a single gene disease? And what sort of diseases are these multi, multifactorial diseases? So the single gene diseases are things like uh, cystic fibrosis, um, Huntington's disease. They're the type of diseases that actually, you know, when you study genetics at school, then you, you know, these are the type of diseases which we you get taught or you know taught as genetic diseases they're the ones where you have the the pedigree diagrams and you look to see whether mum has a disease or dad has a disease and how many of the children have the disease and you can see a very clear inheritance pattern these are the these are the classic mendelian diseases the single gene diseases um, the more complex diseases are probably the ones that um, have a, a greater frequency in the population. So things like autoimmune diseases, so type 1 diabetes, Crohn's disease, um, celiac disease, then things like um, most cancers, things like hypertension, and not just diseases, you know, there are genetic influences on lots of human traits, so your height, your weight... Your, your overall body shape, all of these, um, all of these tra- human traits have genetic influences and assessing how, how important genetics is to each of these traits is, uh, is, is a complex thing to do and that's one, of the, that's one of the jobs of a human geneticist. And once we've found out that perhaps genetics has a large role to play in some of these diseases, our next job is to go on and identify those specific regions of the genome that look to be underpinning that genetic risk. So how on earth do you do that? How do you pin down a region of the genome or a particular gene and say, right, that's involved in heart disease, that's involved in schizophrenia? It's surprisingly simple, actually. So basically what we do is we take a whole bunch of people who have the disease and a whole bunch of people who don't have the disease. So how big is a bunch? Well, it really depends on the size of the genetic effect that you're trying to find. So if you think that your, the particular disease you're working on is likely to have... Um, genetic effects, which are a relatively small effect, let's say, um, then you're going to need lots of people to do this experiment in. So um, in the last five years or so, we've started doing these genome-wide association studies. And so what typically happens for an, in a genome-wide association study is we take, say, 3,000 people who have a disease and we compare them to 3,000 people who don't have a disease. And we genotype them at a whole bunch of various positions throughout the genome. And so we end up having, say, half a million or a million sites throughout each of these people's genomes. And then we just look to see if at any of these particular sites there is a difference between the people who do have the disease and people who don't have the disease. And then if we find a site where there's a difference, we just look in the uh, reference databases that we have to find whereabouts in the genome that you know that particular site is, what genes lie near it, and does that actually tell us then something about that particular disease. Presumably you're not looking at these millions of different variations by eye with a pencil how no. do you how do you analyze this kind of data so um the the type of science that we do at, at, at sanger and these genome-wide associations is extremely high throughput in the sense that you know you've got lots of genetic data across many thousands of individuals so the the data sets are very large so we have to use um the computational tools basically to go in and conduct statistical tests at each one of these sites and then um, when we're analyzing um, the results of that we have to bear in mind how many tests we've performed to try and make sure that, you know, obviously you're doing many tests and so you're, you, the chance of you 
finding a false positive is quite high, and so you need to con- you need to control for all that. So we basically use the, the computers to allow us to analyze all this data very quickly and efficiently, and um, we use uh, statistical methods to try and pull out from all those m- many um, thousands and thousands of tests the, the few interesting sites that remain. Where do you think this kind of research is going to be heading in the future? We've been relatively limited to um, the amount of a particular person's genome that we can survey. So before we've been just you know, typing specific sites in the genome, perhaps a million um, sites, and using those one million sites throughout the genome to try and infer what's going on throughout the whole genome. Now, uh, with the advent of next-generation uh, sequencing, we can, we can get hold of virtually every single base in any particular person's genome. So we've got much more thorough coverage of, uh, of, of one person's genome. And so this, uh, this really increases the power of our studies. Also, with the falling costs of, of those technologies, we could start to do that very thorough survey on many thousands and thousands of, of people. And so I think what, what this is going to allow us to do is it basically allows us to survey more of the, the genetic architecture of the diseases. Before, we were li- limited to genetic variants, which were perhaps quite common in the population. Whereas now uh, we can actually start to survey down to genetic variants which are perhaps very rare in the population. And indeed, we can probably even get at those specific variants which are unique to any one individual person. Do you think that one day in the not-too-distant future, we'll actually, when a baby is born, it will have some blood taken, it will have its genome sequenced? I think, it's, I think that's extremely likely. I think, it, um, I think the potential medical benefits are quite huge and I, I, I really think that uh, we'll, we'll be there soon. That was Carl Anderson from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Centre. Now it's time to delve into the post bag to answer your genetics questions. This month we've got a great question from Cameron Lapworth who asks, if half of your DNA comes from your mother and half from your father... Why aren't all siblings identical twins, just born at different times? To answer it, here's Dr Phil Zegerman from the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge. And so to understand real individuality, we really have to understand how you and I were made. And it really starts when uh, a sperm from your dad and an egg from your mum got together and made you, and made you as an individual. Sperm and egg are made by a special form of cell division, which is called meiosis. And meiosis is special because it turns a diploid, which has two copies of every chromosome, into a haploid, which has one copy of every chromosome. So when a cell goes through the process of meiosis, you take these 46 human chromosomes and you turn it into a cell with one copy of every chromosome, which now means it has only 23 chromosomes. And very importantly, this process of meiosis is random. Every cell that goes through meiosis will inherit one of every chromosome, but whether it inherits one from your mother or your father is random. So, for example, when your father's cells went through meiosis to make sperm, it was random whether you inherited chromosome 2, let's say, from his mother or chromosome 2 from his father. So now you can see that when you get an egg and a sperm fusing together, as happened for you and your brothers and sisters, you now see this is now a random collection of chromosomes that aren't just from your parents, but the random collection of chromosomes they inherited themselves from their parents. But it's actually much more complicated than just random assortment. During the process of meiosis, chromosome 2 will align next to chromosome 2, and chromosome 4 will align next to chromosome 4, and so on and so forth. And this process is absolutely essential to ensure that each haploid sperm or egg inherits exactly one copy of all the different chromosomes. 
more than just being essential for the inheritance of every single chromosome, it also allows a very special process to occur whereby chromosomes that are similar but not identical that line up can now exchange pieces of DNA. And this results in making completely unique chromosomes. So now you've swapped a bit of chromosome 2 that your father inherited from his mum with a bit of chromosome 2 that he inherited from his dad. And the end result is a chromosome 2 that is neither your dad's, nor is it your grandma's, nor is it your grandfather's. It's completely unique. It's got a bit of both grandma's and granddad's. And that is the chromosome that your sperm that made you inherited. It's completely unique to that sperm. That was Dr Phil Zegerman from the Gurdon Institute speaking to naked scientist Louise Anthony. If you've got any burning questions about genes, DNA and genetics that you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com, tweet us at Naked Genetics or post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them for you. And finally, our gene of the month may be familiar to any Star Trek fans who are listening. It's none other than Tribbles. It was first discovered in 2000 by Thomas Sayer and Maria Leptin, who found that cells in fruit flies with mutations in the gene multiply uncontrollably, much like the furry critters in Star Trek. Since then, Tribbles has turned up in many other organisms, including humans, where there's a large family of related proteins that help to control fatty acid production, insulin resistance, cholesterol levels and more. Unsurprisingly, some of these Tribbles proteins have been implicated in conditions such as type 2 diabetes and the formation of atherosclerotic plaques, the fatty deposits that can block blood vessels and cause heart attacks. Unusually high levels of Tribbles have also been found in leukaemia cells, which fits with the protein's other role in driving cell growth, although I should point out it doesn't make the cancer cells furry. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month taking a closer look at epigenetics, the complex code that means our cells know whether to be skin, lung, liver or anything else, even though they all have the same DNA. And I'll be finding out how to turn the clock back to create stem cells from adult tissue. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast has been brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another look inside your genes. <laughs>